appreciate all of the, all of the music here. It's a blessing. Well, Ecclesiastes chapter seven is where we are tonight. Ecclesiastes chapter number seven. Tonight we're going to look at verses one through ten. And I want us to look at these verses in the light of this statement, and this would be the title, I guess, of the message. It's kind of hard to put a title to some of these messages, but uh, do you know what's good for you? Do you know what's good for you? It's real easy for us to think we do, but we're not always right. And uh, so we're going to look at these first ten verses. I'm not going to read them all. We'll just... Take each one as we come to them. But so far, in our study of Ecclesiastes, everything has been basically negative. Uh, I'm sure some folks, you know, that maybe had never studied the Bible before, they're thinking, oh, my land, is this whole book going to be like this? I mean, it'll put you in a state of depression. Everything about it is negative. It's all this under-the-sun view of of everything on earth, and it makes you wonder, you know, why anybody would want to live here. But now Solomon, finally, long last, he turns to the positive. And uh, in the first six chapters, he talked to us about his disappointments. But now he begins to speak to us about his deductions. His deductions, that is the conclusions that he has drawn as a result of the disappointments that he experienced. So we go out of the dark gloom and finally see a ray of hope. And I might say that this is actually a turning point in his life. And we're going to see that from here on out. Uh, in Ecclesiastes 6 and verse number 12, Solomon actually, actually questioned man's ability to know what is actually good. And that's why I said if I was going to put a title to the message, it would be, do you know what's good for you? And that was a question that Solomon raised. Do we really have the ability to even know what's good for us? Because, you know, uh, sometimes we get it entirely wrong. But beginning in this seventh chapter, he acknowledges that there are certain things that are better than other things. Uh, and in chapter 6, we saw that, you know, that prosperity might not always be good for us. And now we see that difficulties might not always be bad for us like we think. We think, you know, the whole world's falling apart, everything's horrible and terrible, I can't possibly enjoy life because I've got so many problems. Well, that's just not always the case. And we've heard the, you know, the phrase probably from childhood, you know, you're, uh, and I can remember my mother and daddy both saying, if you know what's good for you, well, I, you know, I, the sad thing is I really didn't, but they were trying to warn me. Well, in this message, we're going to talk about some of those things that can actually be good for us. And uh, Solomon has some shocking surprises in store for us here. The key word in this section is better. Because in these ten verses, he uses the word better seven times. In just 10 verses and so we're going to look at these things and we're going to see see what he says is better than their counterparts so that's where we're at verse number one and here's the first thing that he mentions that's the fact that he says a good name is better than precious ointment now whenever 
you know, we think of ointment today. We think you know, particularly of some kind of a medicinal value added to it, and it certainly could have had that connotation in that day, but it basically had to do with an oil or a perfume, and it was associated with riches and honor. And, you know, that's why they uh, anointed the bodies of those that were deceased. They're uh, trying to show respect. And uh, so this is what he's talking about here. Now, naturally, to our natural mind, well, we think, well, man, I'd, I'd a whole lot rather, uh, I'd a whole lot rather uh, have riches and honor than, than I would just about anything else. Uh, but, Pro but Solomon said, uh, in, in Proverbs, I think it's 22, he said that a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. And that's the same thought that we see in our text here tonight because there's no way we can calculate the value of a good name. It speaks about, uh, it speaks about our character. It speaks about our reputation. And, and sadly, there's a lot of folks have the attitude that, you know, they don't care what you think about them, at least in terms of, of godliness in their character. They, they really don't care. They're going to do their own thing, live their own way, and if it offends you, that's, you know, that's just tough luck. But there was a time when a, a family name was of great importance. I remember even as a kid this being talked about a lot, you know, well, you know, you're from the this family or that family, and it meant something to people in those days. It, it was common to hear, for parents, you know, to remind their children, uh, guard our family name. I remember reading about Alexander the Great, and uh, and he had received a message that one of his soldiers had been continuously uh, and seriously uh, misbehaving. And, and he put the character of all of the all of the troops in, into question. People despise them because basically of the attitude of this one guy. And so, uh, to make matters worse, this guy's name happened to be Alexander. And so, whenever Alexander the Great received word of it, he sent uh, for this fellow and called him in. And uh, he said, "You know, what is your name?" And the man responded, he said, Alexander, sir. And, and Alexander the Great said, soldier, either change your behavior or change your name. And that's, that's good advice. And, and, and it's especially whenever we think about being Christians and identifying ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, we need, to, we need to take that into consideration because we represent him wherever we go and whatever we do. And that's why the Bible repeatedly tells us that we are to be blameless in everything we do. It, that doesn't mean that we're to be perfect. We know that none of us are perfect, and God understands that. He remembers that we are but flesh, but we can be blameless. And that simply means that no indictable charge can be brought against us. You know, people can slander us. They can make all kinds of charges against us, but there will be no evidence to support the, the charges. And so... Whenever we think about what we're going to leave in this world, the one thing we all ought to be concerned about is a good name because of who we represent. Booker T. Washington, and here's, here's a fellow you know that was uh, 
that was a former slave, and yet he ascended to statesmanship. He was the advisor to several presidents. He was a lecturer, an author, an orator. I, I, I don't know what all he accomplished, but uh, he spoke uh, in this regard. Here's a man that basically came from having absolutely nothing and being what the world would call a nobody to becoming a real somebody in the world, somebody that advised our presidents. And he said, slaves have no names, no authentic genealogy, no family history, no ancestral traditions, and therefore, he says, they have nothing to live up to. And that was the reason that he invented his own name. And, and I want you to listen to the explanation that he gave for inventing his name, Booker T. Washington. He said this, he said, I tried to picture myself in the position of a boy or a man with an honored and distinguished ancestry. As it is, I have no idea who my grandmother was. The very fact that the white boy is conscious that if he fails, he will disgrace the whole family is of tremendous value in helping him to resist temptations. And the fact that the individual has behind him a proud family history serves as a stimulus to help him overcome the obstacles when striving for success. I believe there's a great, great lesson for us to learn in that. And especially, as I said, we Christians, when we, when we identify ourselves as followers of Christ, that, that ought to mean something to us. And every day of our life, we ought to strive to live in a way to where to where we don't do anything that's going to make the gospel repulsive or anything that is going to bring reproach upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It, you know, it's, uh, uh, when we think about representing him, that puts a tremendous load of responsibility uh, upon our shoulders, and we need to live with that in mind every name. So uh, he's simply telling us that, look, a good name is far more value than fortune or fame and naturally uses the word ointment rather than fortune and fame but he's speaking about those that arise to honorable places and those that have wealth and things of that nature and he's saying a good name is better than all of that now look at the second part of verse one here's the second thing that's better he says death is better than life well about now, there's some folks wondering if Solomon has lost his mind. Because, I, I, I mean, I have to agree with you when you first read that. It sounds absolutely crazy. You know, it is so contrary to popu popular reasoning that it, it appears that, it, that it's got to be untrue. How can that possibly be true? Because, you know, we go to a funeral, and naturally we, uh, we weep at a funeral. A baby is born into this world, and what do we do? We rejoice. So how can it be said that death is better than birth? Well, in the first place, we need to understand this wouldn't be true of absolutely everyone. That's pretty obvious. People that are unsaved, for example, uh, it, it's certainly not better for them. Death for the unbeliever ends all hope. And keep in mind that Solomon in his writing is here is a Jew writing basically 
to and for the Jewish people, the representatives of, of God upon this earth. And, and, so, and all of them, naturally, as you know from the self-righteous Pharisees, all of them thought of themselves as the children of God. So we need to view this from that perspective in regards to God's children uh, the day of our death is better than the day of our birth because regardless of how difficult life is, you know, it, it's, uh, uh, and it can get difficult, regardless of how difficult it is, he's telling us here that is even better than the day of your birth. Why would he say that? Well, birth brings us into a world of what? Heartache, pain, suffering. It brings us into a fallen world. I think I made the comment last week about the fact that, you know, the, uh, the little children are safe. You know, we, they may not be saved in the sense of we think of them accepting Christ as their Lord and Savior, but they're safe because when the Lord Jesus Christ shed his blood, he did so, and it's sufficient for, for them and those that have not yet reached the age of accountability. So... The day of your birth is the day that you enter into a world of sorrow and suffering and pain. By the way, this is exactly what Paul was dealing with over in Philippians chapter number 1. And you'll remember there, and keep in mind that he's writing from prison. Here is a faithful servant of God who has gone through all kinds of great difficulties brought upon him by unjust people. And so as he writes this letter from his prison cell, he talks about the fact that he is content to remain on earth. And, you know, that's saying a lot right there. Uh, content going through all of the difficulties. He says, I've learned to be content in whatever state that I'm, I'm in. And so he makes no bones about that. But he's also very clear about the fact, but, but, Heaven would be better. I like Brother Nolan sings that song, uh, Heaven is Better Than This, and it sure is. And, and Paul acknowledged that, you know, to, to, to die and to be with the Lord, you know, that would be, that would be better. Uh, but I'm content to stay here. Why would he make a choice like that? Well, because God needed him here on this earth to reach others. In other words, there was a work for him to do, and that work was so very important to him that he was willing to stay here. He preferred heaven, but he was content to stay here because of God's purpose for his life. But let me say this. Let's suppose that it was possible in some way Somebody invented a pill or gave you an injection or whatever it was at birth, and it would ensure that you could live a trouble-free, painless life, you know. And let's suppose that you could indulge in every possible pleasure upon this earth without any negative consequences. In other words, it would just be living that dream world where everything went your way. Let me tell you, heaven would still be better by far than that. There is nothing on this earth that compares to heaven. Uh, it just doesn't get any better than that. It's better than anything that we can possibly imagine. Now we look at verse number 2, and here we see the third thing, the third contrast. 
And again, it just, it just doesn't sound right. But he tells us here that mourning is better than feasting. He says, verse 2, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Now, that raises a question. What would you choose, a funeral or a feast? I, th I think we'd all choose the, the latter, right? Uh, give me a feast anytime. I mean, who enjoys going to, to a funeral? But here he says there's a sense in which the funeral is better. That is, it's better in the sense that it is more profitable. But how, how can that be? And uh, Solomon, he, he must have known that, you know, if I write this, Lord, there's some people going to uh, be questioning this they're not going to understand and they're going to need an explanation so notice he goes on gives us the explanation as to why it's better he says for that is the end of all men and the living will lay it to heart there's much more in that verse than i have time to talk about but believe me that is a very very powerful statement he says the house of mourning is better than the house of feasting for that is the end of all men. That's where we're all going to end up. And he says, as a result of the mourning, he says, and the living will lay it to his heart. It's kind of like we might put it today that, uh, uh, that you know, if Solomon was speaking to us in our everyday language, uh, that he might say, you know, funerals have a way of getting your attention. And they really do because they remind us they remind us we're all going to die. Every time we go to a funeral someday, we realize that someday that's going to be us. And if we're wise, we'll lay it to heart because, you know, long after the feast is forgotten, you know, the memory of the funeral will live on. And so the funeral service in the morning becomes a wake-up call over these many years I've seen many whose lives were changed at a funeral, as a result of a funeral, the result of losing a loved one, and it literally changed their lives. I, I, I wish I could tell you, especially one of the stories about a young boy killed in a car wreck, and uh, it was so sad. His name was Buddy, and I'll never forget, uh, we, we went out to the farm, uh, and uh, after after we had eaten a bite and all of the family was gathered and friends and church members and I'll never forget his uh, daddy saying, Brother Stone, would you take a walk with me? And I said, I sure would. And so we began to walk around the farm and all of the cattle and everything and all of the crops and uh, and uh, and he he broke down and he started crying and talked about how all of that didn't mean anything to him, he said, anymore in light of the fact that his boy buddy uh, was now gone. And he made this statement. He said, I am so brokenhearted that I was so busy. I was so busy making this farm and getting, trying to get for my family and be, get all of this stuff. And here's what he said. He said, I never took time to stop and smell the roses. I never took time to stop and smell the roses. And boy, it made that, that funeral service made such an impact on his heart. 
that it, it literally changed the way that he lived his life after that. And, and no doubt that story could be retold uh, thousands of times that people go through life without any, without any real emphasis on what's really important in life until all of a sudden, uh, all of a sudden one of their dear loved ones has, uh, has left this world and, uh, and all of a sudden they begin to think about what could have been and what should have been. You know, I, I, I just don't know anybody's ever been affected by a feast like that. I really, really enjoy, you know, getting together. And our next door neighbors to, this afternoon, I heard some, some noise and, and some music. And so I, I, I peeked out the window just to look next door. And I hardly even know these folks. They're nice people. But I noticed there was probably four or five couples and their children and uh, and they were out back and they were grilling, having fun. It brought back a lot of lot of memories for Bev and I back many years ago. Whenever you know we used to spend a lot of time with some of our family and uh, uh, not just our family, but our friends, people that I worked with and things like that, and people that I played ball with, and and we'd get together and. And, and just enjoy one another's uh, company. Uh, but as good as all of that is, I've never known anyone leave something like that and say, boy, this is a life-changing experience for me. But boy, a funeral makes us stop and think it, about the, uh, the brevity of life, the destiny of our soul, our accountability to God, and many times, listen, many times that's the only thing that will accomplish these things because some people absolutely refuse to listen to a sermon. They're just not going to listen. They might sit there and endure the sermon, but, and, and if they do hear what you say, they're not going to take it to heart. But boy, do they ever get a wake-up call at the funeral when a loved one has been taken from them. And that's what he's saying here. Now, look at verse number 3. And here in verse 3, we see, what, the fourth thing that's better than something. He says, sorrow is better than laughter. For by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is, is, is in the house of the mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now, this is closely associated with what we've been talking about uh, already I understand that but there's some variations here and he's having us to really stop and think about our life and what's good for us and you know and what might not be so productive or so profitable in our life and we've all heard the old proverb you know an ounce of an ounce of uh, of mirth is worth a, a pound of sorrow uh, well Solomon says that's really not true a lot of old proverbs are not necessarily true. They're just proverbs that are carried on from generation to generation because they're quaint old sayings that uh, people have remembered and sound like they're uh, written by someone very wise, but that's not always the case. And he just flat out says sorrow is better than laughter. And so again, you have to scratch your head and wonder, well, how in the world can this be? And again, he gives us the answer. He tells us, that what is best for our soul isn't always most pleasing to our senses. And notice he says, and here's the because here, because he says the heart is made better. You know, by nature, everybody would rather, 
would rather laugh than cry, I, I think. You know, there might be a few people it seems like they'd rather cry than laugh, but, but not deep down, not, not for real. That's like someone, you know, talking about, well, I, I, I just don't want to live anymore. I'm just tired of life. Don't want to live. They really don't mean that. I mean, at that particular moment, but as soon as their sanity returns and they realize the folly of what they just said, all of a sudden they begin to realize, I don't really want to die today. And so there might be some that it seems like that they're giving over to, to sorrow to the extent that that's what they prefer, but that's really not it. Everybody would rather be happy. Everybody would rather, rather laugh. And yet Solomon comes along and he says, but sorrow is better, and it's better in the sense that the heart is made better. And uh, yeah, we hear a lot about uh, these comedy clubs, laugh clubs, you know, and people just love stuff like that. I I've never heard about a crying club, have you? Never, ever. Well, you all bring your Cokes and your chips and come over tonight. We're going to have a, we're, we're just going to sit around and cry. Nobody plans that. We all want to laugh and we all want to enjoy life and and, and, and don't misunderstand this because the same Bible that I'm reading from tells us that laughter is good for the body and good for the soul. There's not anything wrong with that. Solomon himself said, A merry heart maketh a cheerful countenance, and a merry heart doeth good like, like a medicine. So it's good. There's not anything wrong with that. But he says that laughter isn't necessarily uh, or nearly so transforming to our character as sorrow is. Many, many years, oh, probably over 50 years ago now, I ran across a little poem that uh, I jotted down in one of the old Bibles I used to carry by Robert Browning Hamilton. And you've probably heard it before. But it says, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word she said, but all oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. And boy, how true that is. There's so many times that, that it takes a heartbreaking experience in sorrow and tears for us to really learn the lesson that we need to learn. And, you know, in this world that's absolutely gone mad over fun and games, we've really lost sight of what's valuable and what's not because, after all, we want to try to make life as fun, as easy as possible. And, and so in doing so, we fail to understand that we're actually strengthened by our struggles. And, uh, boy, the Bible is full of verses. I, I keep one stack of, uh, and, of course, I lost so many of my old sermon outlines and notes and what have you during Harvey. But uh, since then, I've got different stacks. I, I, I used to have everything so organized. And boy, I could, any verse of scripture or anything I'd ever preach, I could just put my hands on it in a heart and be new right where it was now. I, it kind of goes back to the way I started. You preach a sermon, you put it over in the shoebox, you know, something like that. Well, I've got different stock, uh, stacks uh, around on my desk and places that uh, know not only to me that in the little cubby holes. And I say that because i got one sack that just deals with things like uh, messages about heartache and sorrow 
I could preach for the next six months every service, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, and still not even begin to cover all the material in regards to adversity and sorrow and suffering and things of that nature. It's such, uh, it's such not only a big part of our lives, but it's such a very important part of our lives because it's like Job talking about the refiner's fire. And you, know, you think about why God would allow anyone to go through these horrible experiences. And he said, well, I know that you know, whenever it's all done, whenever it's all over, I'll come forth as fine go. And thank God for that knowledge that God is going to take the worst of things that happen to us and use them for the very best things that we can possibly imagine in our life. We don't know it at the time. We don't understand it. We don't realize it. We can't explain it. But some way, when we go through these struggles, it has a way of strengthening us in a spiritual sense. And so if you want to learn some valuable lessons just spend some time with people that are suffering or people that are terminally ill. You know, a lot of people, and, and, uh, and I, I've got to say this because I've seen it happen so many times. There's a lot of times people will, will, uh, that are going through great difficulties, and one of the struggles they have is in knowing that other people do not understand. And other people not only don't understand, a lot of times... These people will maybe even accuse them of being phony or, or accuse them of using this and using that as an excuse for what's going on in their life. And, uh, well, sometimes, sometimes people never learn their lesson until they're the one going through the suffering. And all of a sudden, that has a way of changing your perspective on, on absolutely everything whenever you have to go through what they've been going through and all of a sudden it hits you and you learn the lesson i was so very wrong about that person because let me tell you whenever people are going through these struggles in life and it's difficult enough whenever they're trying to just endure it but it's a whole lot worse whenever we we don't when we don't acknowledge that what they're saying is actually true, you know, my Bible says, you know, love thinketh no evil. That's another way of saying love gives people the benefit of the doubt. If you can't prove something against somebody, then don't say something bad about somebody. I mean, if you don't have the evidence to back it up, then you ought to give them the benefit of the doubt. But the point is that we learn more from our suffering and our trials in, a, in an hour or a week than we do in a lifetime with the party crowd, in a lifetime filled with pleasure. We don't learn anything really from that. It's when we're going through the hard times and we're forced to depend upon God. Uh, as most of you know, I don't agree with everything Charles Spurgeon uh, wrote or, or said or preached at all. Uh, but I, I do agree with a lot of it. I've learned a, a lot from reading Charles Spurgeon from, from the time that I started preaching. Someone introduced me to his ministry, and uh, he's called the Prince of Preachers, probably the most famous preacher of all time, except going back to the disciples. 
And uh, I'd, I'd, so I, I'd go to old bookstores. I couldn't afford to go to the bookstore and buy new books. So I'd dig around through those old used bookstores and try to uh, find a book and I'd get it and I would just devour that book. And so I was so impressed with him. What an impressing story. I, I read his life story and, and it was so very impressive. And then one day in the book he wrote lectures to my students, he had a chapter in there that had to do with depression. And I never dreamed in all of my life that somebody as great as Charles Spurgeon would be troubled with something like depression. Because in your mind, you're thinking, oh my, if you're a really spiritual-minded, uh, uh, mature Christian person, uh, you, won't, you won't have trouble with depression. You'll be rejoicing all of the time. And, 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 and let me tell you, a lot of people, I say, I'm saying all this for a reason, because there's so many times we become so very judgmental of other people and what they're going through that we make it more difficult for them to get through it. But let me tell you, and this is, serves as a warning, be careful about that because there's going to come the time where you are going to be put in a situation where you're going to learn something you never knew. You thought you knew what was best for you, but God has another plan, and that plan sometimes really hurts just like it did for Paul to be in that prison, for him to be beaten and to suffer uh, uh, everything that he went through. But he said, uh, you know, to die and be with Christ, he said that would be gain, that would be better. But he said it's more needful for me to stay here and to be with you. Now, verse number 5, and here's the fifth thing that's, better than something he says rebuke of the wise is better than the song of fools isn't that some it is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of few of, of, of fools for as the crackling of thorns under a pot so is the laughter of the fool this also is vanity now you know while going through these first six verses i I, 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 as a preacher, I begin to notice different themes and things that would make good titles for sermons. And I think about the day of death, that's a good title, or, or the house of mourning, the house of mirth, and what have you. But now, here's another one where he talks about the song of fools. The song of fools. And the other day when I was reading this and thinking about it, uh, First thing coming to my mind is I think I've heard some of their music, uh, <laughs> the song of, of fools. Uh, but Solomon's not speaking about a particular style of music. He's talking about the empty, the meaningless, the frivolous words, songs, the laughter of fools. He's talking about people that'd rather be, you know, entertained than to be edified. You know, they they don't mind being inspired. They quite like that but they don't want to be instructed. You know, and even those that are willing to listen aren't always willing to listen uh, to be rebuked. Uh, uh, they don't mind listening to what you're saying up to the point you start telling them that what's right and what's wrong. To hear the rebuke of the wise. Let's face it, naturally, none of us enjoys being rebuked. That's a, that's a hard thing to endure. I remember one of our deacons, uh, used to be a deacon years ago, came to me, and uh, 
and he said he was dead serious about it. Uh, he said, Brother Stone, he said, I, I, I want to do my best to live for the Lord. I won't do anything God wants me to do. And he said, if you see me doing anything that's, you know, where I'm going astray, where I'm misled or misleading others, and he went on and on and on. He said, and I mean this, I please, I want you to come and tell me. I, I want you to uh, rebuke me if you must, but, you know, whatever, because I, he said, I need that. Well, some years went by, and uh, and I say this with a broken heart. He's not even in church today. The fact is, he asked for something he wasn't willing to receive. And how sad that is to not be willing to listen uh, to a rebuke whenever it whenever it's needed. We, you know, our human nature is we'd rather be praised instead of someone telling us that that we're that we're wrong. We don't really enjoy that. But what we want and what we need is two different things, you know. And since none of us are perfect, there are going to be times that everybody needs to re, be rebuked in some way. And, and it can come from a lot of different sources. It might be a parent. It might be a a sibling that might be a pastor, a physician, an attorney. It could even it could even be your enemy, someone that's not intending to give you constructive criticism, but somebody that's just out to get you. But when you stop and think about what they said, you have to admit, wow, you know, uh, what they said is really true. And we don't like to admit it, but sometimes we need to face the facts about ourselves, to face reality, and sometimes it takes a rebuke for us to do that. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, he wrote in regards to this very statement, he said, here, not only with patience, but with pleasure, the rebuke of the wise is a sign and a means of wisdom but to be fond of, of the song of fools is a sign that the mind is vain and is the way to make it more so. And how true that is. You know, it's a sign of maturity when someone can listen to the wise advice and counsel and even a rebuke from somebody and learn from it and profit from it rather than getting mad and throwing a fit. The problem with so many people today is the fact that people use anger as a weapon. And the moment you try to reason with them, the moment you try to tell them that something is wrong, they blow up, they explode as a result of that. That's, that's their way. You find somebody that's quick to anger, and I'll tell you, you find somebody that's trying to hide something. They're trying to cover up something, and they're going to use that anger as, to keep you away from it. Don't you dare confront so-and-so, you know, because if you do, they're going to get mad. Uh, you, if you do, they might even quit coming to church. And believe me, people, there are people with that attitude. If you confront me about this, you know, I'm through, I'm done, I'm out of here. They don't want to hear any rebuke, and that's why they remain spiritual babies throughout their lifetime. Well, we got one more thing, and that is uh, here in verse number 8, 9, and 10, and he talks about the end is better than the beginning. I sat down this week, and I, I, I didn't even make the connection but I was started writing an article about uh, the end, thinking and considering and keeping the end in mind. 
and uh, and then whenever I thought about the message, I all of a sudden it hit me that this is the way this message ends. The end is better than the beginning. And these last two Proverbs here are surrounded with information that relate to both of them. It says, better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. But now notice, look at verse 7, of what he relates this to. He says, surely oppression maketh a wise man mad, and a gift destroyeth the heart. And in other words, things like oppression and bribery can often be so long, so severe that even a wise man might act out of character. Somebody can be provoked to the point that you push them past their limit and under the worst of circumstances, sometimes even the best people lose their temper and sin. So how do you deal with these things? Well, look at verse 8. Here's the answer. He says, we, uh, we, we remember the end. That's what he's talking about here. In other words, the oppressors might seem to have the upper hand, but in the end, what? They're going to be brought low. In the end, those that are oppressed are going to be exalted. Now, verse 8, he says, And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. And keep in mind what we're talking about now. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit, you know. Uh, The temptation when somebody mistreats you is what? retaliate i'm going to get even if it kills me we have that attitude a lot of times i'm going to get even if it even kills me some way or another i'm going to make them pay for what they did well you're going to end up paying for it you're the ones going to end up getting hurt in the end you see and and god warns us about that very thing that Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. That's why we need to be patient in spirit rather than proud in spirit. Because what? Because pride is that very thing that causes us to lash out and retaliate and try to get even with people. Because it's our pride that causes us, you know, that we don't want to listen to the rebuke of a wise person. Now, verse 9, Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. And then verse 10, and believe me, I've got another 15 or 20 minutes, but I, I want to wrap it up with verse 10. Say not thou, what is the cause that the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. In other words, you could say while we're not to live for the moment only, we have to live in the moment. It is what it is. This, this is our time in the world. Yesterday gone, uh, is gone. Tomorrow hasn't come, and all we have is today. And it's real easy for some people, you know, and probably happens to all of us at a certain stage in life we start looking back the way it used to be and we we have a way of recalling all of the things that we enjoyed in the good old days and we long for the good old days but if we really stop and think about it the good old days wasn't always that good sometimes they were a lot worse than what we're going through and we'll profit a lot if we'll learn to be content with where we are uh, as, as you know, uncle's, uh, or Esther's uncle said, you know, uh, who knowest that thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. We're here during this time, and 
you know, we, my, somebody said, I'd, I'd love to live back in the days when Jesus walked on the earth, really. You, you've never really studied history if you think that. And believe me, you've got it better than any generation's ever had it on the face of the earth. And we need to keep that in mind. How blessed we are. Sure, there's all of these bad things that could happen, but the best is yet to come. Let's all stand in prayer and we're going to be dismissed. And I, I'm going to get this phone and make sure it's not an emergency of some kind. It's very rare for somebody to, uh, to call during the service. And I... Uh, I'm hoping and praying that it'll be good news. Darren, good to see you and your mother here tonight. Uh, would you dismiss us in prayer, please?